computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to Intelligent Performance, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavor. And today, we welcome a very special guest, someone who knows a thing or two about getting older. Not only is he a slightly small senior gentleman, but... This guy is a specialist in what happens to your brain as you get older. Are you like most people who think that as you get older, you kind of shrivel and just die? Well, let this episode set you straight. Welcome Michael Netsley, a specialist, a recovering academic, and now an entrepreneur who's out to help older people and the senior amongst us rethink about how they get older and what you can do to retrain your brain to actually improve with age, not decline. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's dive straight in. Michael, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, where I love to start is what does intelligent performance mean to you in terms of your domain? In terms of the work, and thank you very much for having me on the, the episode, but in terms of the work we're currently doing, intelligent performance is focused on the source of that performance, which is your brain. Everything you do, whether it's behavior or thinking or eating and sleeping, it is all regulated and enabled by the brain. So if I could use this real quick metaphor, think about the engine of an automobile. You can have perfect tires, an awesome paint job, the best sound system, perfect wiring through the entire automobile. But if that engine is not performing well, the car is not going to do what you need it to do. And the brain is effectively the equivalent for intelligent performance. What what a great analogy to use. Now, where I'd love to start this conversation is I think you're going to disagree with a lot of the mainstream thinking around there in terms of behavioral change, um, in terms of peak performance. So I want to give you a chance to kind of introduce us to what people typically get wrong when it comes to achieving new behavioral change or elevated behavioral change. Absolutely. And just to preface this, what we're doing at, uh, at my startup is we're drawing from the latest neuroscientific research that's coming from places such as Harvard, MIT, Stanford, Chicago, University of Texas, many different institutions. And we're looking at the biological basis of intelligent performance. And in terms of your brain, what we're really talking about are the neural pathways. So if you want to improve your performance, what that means is that you need to change the neural pathways in your brain. The reason that is different is that most people will say you need to begin with your mindset. In fact, I was coaching a, a bank CEO out of Indonesia, and he said to me, Michael, if I had 100 consultants in the room, you are the only one who would tell me to begin with behavioral change. Everybody else would say begin with mindset change. But we've known for 2,400 years since Aristotle that changing someone's mind is horrendously difficult to do. But a behavior change happens in a heartbeat. So if you want to change your brain, if you want to change your mindset, the first thing you need to do is change your behavior, rewire your brain, and that is what then enables a change in mindset to follow. So a bit 
a bit contrarian, if you will. So help me understand here. Let's say I want to become a runner and a consistent runner. So are you saying that the best thing you can do, if that's your goal, is just to put some runners on and walk out the door? Would that be right? Rather than getting a mindset about like affirmations that oh, I'm a runner, I can do this. Or how would you frame it in terms of that context? Now, the affirmations or the visualizations are important, don't get me wrong, because when you visualize performance, you're activating the same neural networks in your brain. But uh, as somebody who started training for his first triathlon in, in the late 40s, and let me be clear, baby triathlons, there's no way at my age I can do the, the full ones. You really have to start with practicing the right behaviors, okay? So you may need to change your stride or something I always had to work on was the idea that you'd throw your elbows back rather than pumping your arms forward. And so throwing the elbows back allows you to get the, the proper form. You actually need to practice that good form. And when you practice that good form, you rewire the brain. And as soon as you start to feel the success, you start to get that emotional response. This is going to release a, a multitude of neurochemicals into your brain. And that is the magic that enables the rewiring. And all of a sudden you start to believe I can do this. This is how I think about good form while I'm running, or this is how I think about good form with my golf swing, or this is how I think about success in terms of starting a business or writing a book. But all of that rewiring of your brain that enables the mindset to change typically begins with behavioral change, doing the right things to rewire your brain. Take us into that coaching conversation with a bank exec, what were you, without necessarily going into the specific details around this individual, what, what was different about the advice you were giving him in terms of what they were trying to achieve in, the, in their business? So broadly speaking in that conversation, uh, we had a newish CEO and we were talking about people issues within the organization. So there were specific behaviors that we were talking about taking and common issues come up at that point. Uh, I'm a CEO. I'm busy. <laughs> Where do I find the time for this? And so the conversation was really about how do we make that change easier for you? And so I started to break this down into specific behaviors. Next time you schedule a meeting with person X, perform action why just do this first step let's talk about how that worked when we come back next time you'll perform behavior y and behavior z so we're going to add to it but through getting the action right repeating that action and starting to feel the success that enables those neurochemicals to be released so it feels like a reward hey i'm getting this that's where the rewiring happens and uh, as I shared, he literally said to me, nobody else would give me this advice. All these high paid consultants want me to change mindset. But I have a sort of a snarky take on that 
which is that uh, the reason, in part, the reason in part that uh, consultants want to sell you mindset change is because it's so hard, uh, you probably end up renewing the contract and extending it. And the only person who really benefits is the consultants. Whereas if I can give you you know, behaviors, rewire your brain and you find success, I basically put myself out of a job. Uh, I've got to go find a new client at that point. But that's the point. We, we have to help people find that performance edge. So we begin with behaviors and rewire the brain. And so can I just make it really granular so it's really crystal clear? Let's say I'm dealing with an anger management issue. And I'm a CEO and I get this email from my CFO and he tell, it tells me again that we can't go ahead with this project because we don't have the, it's too risky or something like that, or it just doesn't meet the, um, there's no not enough green lights for it. And so typically I get really frustrated at that point. And I want, so what would be your advice in terms of behavioral change there? Because a lot of people will go, okay, take a moment, breathe that kind of thing. What what would be your advice to that angry CEO, you know, about to chop the head off the, the CFO? Well, what I'm going to do in that situation, because I probably can't be there the next time you're about to lose your cool, so to speak, is we're going to move into visualization because that is the only realistic way that we can immediately start to recreate that situation. And the advice is going to, you're right, it is literally going to be pause. So as you're visualizing that moment, pause, all right? And now whatever you're feeling, name it. Maybe you've heard the expression, name it to tame it. So you literally have to name it. But after that, what I'll say is when you go home tonight, you need to find three different people who have permission to use that name with you. All right. So uh, I went through this myself. Um, I've had many coaches who've gone through the anger issues. And um, let's say that I name it Bob. Uh, so I've told my wife, you have permission to tell me I'm acting like Bob. Only a couple other people have permission to say this because when you tell me that, I know I'm going to get even more unhappy about the situation. But you have permission. I will not take it out on you. So the next time I start to act like that, um, she would literally say, you're acting like Bob. And my coaches have done the exact same thing. And once you, you start getting that behavioral pattern built, now we can have an actual meaningful conversation about recognizing the trigger. What are the specific behaviors you take when you feel that trigger being pulled or, or the switch being flipped? And we, at that point, really break it down into behavioral steps. But with anger, you have to recognize in the moment what is happening to, happening to you and find the, the mechanisms to immediately change your behavior. And anger is a little bit of a special case because, as I said, I can't be there beside you. Uh, I, I'm not going to spend my holiday with you. So I can't be with you for the next week and wait until you get angry. <laughs> so visualization becomes uh, the behavior that we engage in. Got you. Okay. Very cool. So tell me, your company now is taking this behavioral change to the next level. 
and leveraging AI to do that in a very kind of timely fashion. So I think that, as I understand it, it's built on the premise of nudge theory. So for those who are listening, help us understand what's nudge theory and what's the kind of, what's the, yeah, kind of the belief around this approach. Nudge theory is very cool. Um, 2017 Nobel Prize went to Professor Thaler at University of Chicago for all of his research on nudge theory. And it's simply the idea that I can frame or shape a choice for you so that when you actually in the real world face that choice, you are more likely to make a better choice. So it's often called choice architecture, but it's simply a brief snackable message. And let me give you a couple of examples. Think back to COVID. You went to get on an elevator, the door opens and you saw four squares in the elevator, yellow squares, right? Only four people were supposed to be on the elevator in order to, to, to minimize close contact. Those yellow squares were a nudge. Or maybe you were standing in line at the grocery store and there were yellow lines one meter apart to keep you from getting too close. That's a nudge. When you go to the cafeteria and the uh, ultra-processed junk food that we all love, by the way, is furthest away, but the organic apple is sitting front and center. Because the organic apple is closer, you're much more likely to grab that apple. So simply changing the location of where we've placed that food choice shapes the choice for us. Now, those are very, very basic examples. But it's just the idea that we can make a very small bite-sized nudge and measurably improve the behavioral outcome so that you're more successful. And so it's really about stacking, is it like doing small things which help you make better choices? Is that what you're kind of saying? A bit like throwing out, if you're on a diet or trying not to eat sugar, you might throw out sugary snacks in the cupboard and replace it with I don't know some a better a belt a better health choice or, or something to that degree is that is that kind of along the right lines let me give you maybe two business examples so let's say an organization uh one of my clients has made a massive investment in artificial intelligence and wants to adopt AI so one of the nudges I could give to them would be what are you going to do? You're going to plan your next step or are you going to take action and test it now? Now, they already know the right answer. I don't have to lecture them. I don't have to preach to them. It's, it's, part, it's been part of the company conversation for two years. Act now, run a quick test and learn from it. Then have a conversation with your team. All I have to do is remind them that your classic choice is to plan it out your new choice is to test it and learn. What are you going to do? That's all we have to say to them. Now, that is what we mean by choice architecture. And on average, on average, and there's millions of data points behind this, you will see about a 13% gain off of this, off of this nudge. So I like to say, would you like to have 13 13% more time, 13% more money, 13% more uh, impactful, 13% greater customer service. This is what a nudge can give you. 
And with the AI and the personalization, which by the way, this kind of personalized engine, as far as I know, has not yet been built in the world. Uh, we're trying to achieve about a 25% gain. That is our ultimate goal. And as I understand it, you're doing it at a, at a corporate a corporate level, Michael. So imagine, let's say I work for, I don't know, let's say a, a bank, for example, and I'm, I'm in the lending team. So how would I be engaging with this piece of software? What would be the benefit as a, as a staff member? What, what would be, yeah, how are you kind of trying to help me do my job better? Yes. So think about a B2B2C model. Okay. So uh, like a, a Hogan personality assessment, for example, the organization will hire us to come in, do the assessment, build the nudges. Uh, you'll then receive, the employee will then receive four nudges a day. And we start to measure the change and we complement it with coaching or uh, micro courses if you so choose uh, in, in that situation. But all of your information, all of your measurement stays with you as an individual. The organization receives only aggregated data. Otherwise, if we don't protect that privacy, people will game the system. So it's literally a B2B2C model that we're using. Uh, employers are the payer. Employees are the end user and, and the primary beneficiary. And what am I actually, so what are those four nudges looking like? If I'm that, let's say I'm, I'm that lending guy or I'm in the, I've got a small team um, and heading up the lending team or uh, yeah, let's say I'm managing B2B loans or business loans in this kind of banking institution, what am I, what am I getting nudged on? So it, it, it's going to be customized for every institution because if we're in uh, uh, the sales and the service of loans, that's different than engineers who are building, delivering high technology, which is going to be different than, say, uh, a talent professional who's dealing with an aging workforce. So the first thing we'll do is we'll go in and customize those. But I might in the morning give you a nudge that uh, gives you a choice. Do you want to begin with morning inspiration or would you like to begin with uh, visualization exercise? So, so you would choose. And what the, the, the nudge would then come up and give you a choice to think about, you know, what, what, what are you most grateful for? Is it family or professional? You know, say thank you to yourself for just 30 seconds. Now that might be, that might sound simplistic. It may sound even a bit patronizing, but again, the research on a gratitude practice is phenomenal you change your brain. So after that, when you get to work, you would actually have two performance-based nudges during the day. And these are going to be, what do you want to say when you speak to that most important account that you hope to close today? Are you going to begin with what's in it for you? what the you know what your your loan package offers or are you going to begin with what's in it for them how they benefit from whatever may be in that loan package so just simply reminding people think about your customer don't always dwell on yourself which is a, a very common mistake and then so these kinds of patterns will will continue two more times during the day 
but it's again just a, a short snackable message it takes seconds to read and it frames the most important and most common choices that we make throughout the day and if let's say i'm this banking professional how do you stop it becoming annoying because okay, how do you keep that because uh, that's what i've noticed with some of this let's say notifications on your phone right if you're not careful, it becomes like, oh, God, this thing again. So how do you how do you do that differently? So there's, I, I think, a few answers to this. One is the snackable size of this. You can literally read a nudge in seconds. But I, I, I hear what you say, and I really get annoyed with pop-up messages on my computer, for example. I'm trying to work. Why is this crap popping up? You give the user the control on this that um, they can, you know, there may be an alert on their phone's home screen, but you don't, you're not forced to read it. You can go in and read it when you have the opportunity to do so. So they're short, you have control, but you also have the personalization, that relevance. So bringing this back to brain science, the brain does not rewire if something is not relevant to you. So I could go out and take tennis lessons, for example, and I could put in my 10,000 hours. Wouldn't matter much because I literally have zero interest in tennis. Zero. But if we made it fly fishing, go, you know, going after a big fit, I'm going to be into that. big. So that's going to have relevance for me. So what the AI engine does is it learns about you it adapts to you and it tries to drive that relevance. So if I'm doing uh, research today, then I'm going to read a nudge that is about what makes the research successful for me. And that nudge is going to be written in a way that aligns with my personality type. And just given a, a few weeks of time, this AI engine will learn about you and be able to choose the higher relevancy nudge that you're going to receive. So it's becoming more intuitive. It understands the user on a personalized basis. And instead of saying, this is going to help you better at tennis, it's going to inspire you by relating it to fly fishing in that, in that, uh, to extend that metaphor a little bit more. Yeah, it would, it would know not to send me a nudge about using a tennis metaphor. Um, think of it as like personalized yeah, medicine. The promise of personalized medicine is that you get a better response and a better health outcome. This is personalized change for the profess professional world. So one of the most exciting things when I was doing the research for this interview was really the ability to actually extend the, let's say, the, the the person of a, of, a, of a more senior age, given that around the world we're dealing with an aging population and also senior people in the workforce typically struggle, this is a, a gross generalization, struggle the most with technology just because of a lack of unfamiliarity. And so tell us, what is it, what's the potential you see in this space for actually helping more senior people either retool or upskill or how how would you phrase that this this is the to me the most interesting part and really what spurred me to create extend my runway and give up the life of a professor and and become an entrepreneur you know later in life um for the first time in human history the world has aging populations i mean that, that just 
had never happened before. If we just go back to 1900, the average life expectancy was 47 years. So society has always been built and organized around the youth. And for a long time, we, we thought that your brain would peak 40, 42, 45. But after that, that's the one point in life when you were at your best and everything is downhill after that. Well, the, the research that, that excited me so much basically said, you know what? That's not really true. Here in Singapore, the average life expectancy is now 83. And we're seeing more and more people live a 100-year life. You're seeing people work up to 70 or even later. And then the neuroscience research started to reveal some really interesting things. And let me share a couple of these with you. I'll start off with the one that, that's probably going to shock everybody. Innovative thinking. Research out of the University of Texas uh, is, is they're using something called a brain health index. But don't be misled by the, by the name there because what they're testing is innovative thinking, focus, um, abstract thinking, reasoning, integrative reasoning, just all of these business critical skills. Mm -hmm. What they found about innovation is that, first of all, at any age, Innovative thinking is one of the easiest things to change in your brain. And second of all, that people in their early 60s can show peak innovative thinking capability. And you heard right, early 60s, most innovative thinking. And what, how would you define innovative thinking in terms of like, is that the ability to think outside the box and kind of terminology which most people think about or is it like exactly peak creativity so it's the ability for your brain to move in different ways rather than continue thinking down a well-worn pathway which at that later in life uh, your brain's going to be filled with well-worn pathways but if you take care of your brain, that mind can move in many ways. And what's most profound about this is that movement is fueled by a lifetime of experience, which the younger mind is not yet going to possess. And so when you put that ability of the brain to move in many different ways and you fuel it with experience that you should think this way, you should think that way. This becomes an incredibly powerful combination. And again, if you take care of yourself, which is hard work, if you take care of yourself, you can be most innovative in your 60s. So why have we got it so wrong when you hear the phrase like, can't teach an old dog new tricks? You kind of get a, a um, when you speak to older people, some might say that, you know, they're really stuck in their ways or et cetera, et cetera. So, how have we got it so wrong if that's actually the, the research point? There's, I think, a, a suite of answers to this. And that's a great question, by the way. It's a really good question because this is what's going to affect uh, uh, hundreds of millions of people around the world, literally. Number one, we, we've never had to learn what happens in these later stages of life because at 55 we would have been winding down and retiring by 60 62 so it's it's there's never been an impetus second of all 
as we go through life, the world around us gets mapped in our brain. And year after year, success after success, mistake after mistake, our brain gets really, really good at predicting what's going to happen in the next moment in this world around us. And because we get so good at building that map and, and knowing what's likely to happen next, that we've built those well-worn pathways and we simply start to rely on those pathways. But at the exact same time, we stop seeking out novelty. We stop trying new ways of working. And organizations actually tell employees literally that you need to stay in your lane. You need to stay on that pathway. As long as you continue to do what you do, we won't lay you off. You won't lose your job. But these new opportunities, these new growth opportunities are going to go to the younger people. So people start playing defense and they stay on their pathway. So this just simply reinforces that lack of going out and looking but finally, on top of it all, we never knew the science. People were never equipped with an inspirational story that would say, you can get better in your 50s, 60s, and 70s. We've always been told that you get worse. And guess what? We believed it. That was the best science we had at the time, but it's not exactly correct. So there's a suite of reasons why and what we're trying to do is help people realize that you don't have to stay in your lane. And in fact, the world is probably going to be better off if you wisely use all that life experience and wisely get into a few other lanes and bring some of that goodness into our business, into our life and into our homes. Interesting concept because I was talking and, and coaching a guy who's in his, uh, just turned 40. And we were talking about, he was looking back to his, his twenties and he was like, oh, I've kind of lost that, that va va voom as it were, or that kind of think back to that, how, how inspired sometimes you were at the beginning of your career and you're in your forties now. And his, his mental model was that in 10 years, he wanted to be an executive and after 10 years, he, and after that, by the time he had 60, he was ready for retirement. Right. That was the, and I feel like it's a very traditional, but quite an obvious, yep. um, it's probably not that dissimilar for a lot of people, I, I would say. So if you're speaking to, let's say someone mid forties, early fifties, let's say in that, in that bracket, how are they tapping into, how are they basically disregarding everything they've been told that, you know, they're hitting their fifties, it's time to what, you know, and you know, soon you get to hang your boots up and look back in your career, et cetera, et cetera. How are you encouraging them to think about what's next then? Is, is it really about upskilling and using this nudge theory to, to, to change behavior and to become more innovative and to, to kind of inspire their new life? Or how would you frame it in terms of talking to that specific person? Find your way forward. It's, a, it's as simple as that. Now, we know for a fact that these kinds of uh, transitions that we're talking about to the, you know, the, the more adult brain, the one that we never knew about, you can't just sit down and invent your purpose and write a plan and say, I'm going to go execute. 
that rarely, rarely works. What you need to do instead is that when you when you're into those early to mid 40s, is start creating multiple pathways. All right, I'm going to try a half a dozen new things. And you sort of stumble your way forward. And with time, you kind of realize that, you know, option one and option three, these aren't resonating. These aren't singing to me. But option five, this is what I'm thinking about every morning when I get up. So now you stumble your way forward with five a little bit more. And maybe you add another one or two options to this. But with time... And I'm not talking weeks. Okay, this this is probably going to take a a couple of years because it is adult transition and your brain is relatively set in its ways. But you're going to stumble your way forward. You're going to prune away the options that really don't light your fire. And you will evolve into something that is meaningful and impactful for you. And speaking from my own experience, while I may not have the same relatively empty mind of when I started university at 18 years of age, I do have the same passion and perhaps more curiosity and drive to to learn. I mean, I was up till 11:30 last night reading neuroscientific research out of peer-reviewed journals. Okay, I mean, this is not normal human behavior here. Um, but I am so fired up by it. And these discoveries, there's so much opportunity to help people with these discoveries that I do have the same kind of energy and enthusiasm as the day when I first realized this is how you read Aristotle. And all of a sudden there's an entire new world open to me that I never had before. And I remember the day that that happened vividly, but, but I have that same passion and energy, but it comes from acting or stumbling your way forward and pruning away the things that don't help. It is a form of self-discovery. And I'm intrigued. So if we've got it sounds like we've got the well, everything about aging wrong in terms of you get better with age. You like you're like a fine wine to some to some capacity. Um, we've got our thinking in terms of actually behavioural change is wrong as well. So what else are we getting wrong at the moment? Which actually you know what what does society think? What have we got wrong about this whole process in terms of behavioural change as well? Like what 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 are we what are we really missing here? Okay, let me let me just perhaps qualify qualify that a little bit. Um, again, as adults, we have free will, so it may be that there comes a point in my life where I say I just want to stay home. I want to live next door or one block away from my grandchildren. I'm happy being the babysitter, and uh, in my free time, I want to go fly fishing. That's it. I have made the choice to not continue my own growth and my own development. You can make that choice at any point in life. You can make that choice at 20. I'm sure we all had friends at that age who had already made that choice and have lived it their entire life. Yeah, yeah. So so, so it's your life. Live it the way you want to live it. But when you make that choice, then this growth is not going to happen automatically. So everything that you heard previously about aging will be true once you make that choice. 
Okay, so so I, I want to be very clear about that. But for the people who make a different choice and say, you know what, I fully expect another live another fifty years. I want to make thirty or thirty five of those years awesome. So now we we transition in life. You become a second act entrepreneur like me. You take a, a midlife gap year. Uh, you you you, know, you you go back and you do a, an adult transition university course for one year. I mean, there, there's just so many things we can do. Uh, now what you've done is you've opened up the possibility. Okay, so. With that context, then, if we're going to use behavioral change as the basis for moving forward, going back to the the research on nudge theory, it was actually very eye-opening and very clear. What does not, on average, and again, there's several million data points behind this and a meta-analysis, what does not deliver behavioral change Number one will be inspirational messages. So think about your Instagram feed. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my inspirational messages. I love great quotes. Give me a quote from Marcus Aurelius. I'm all over it. But it doesn't change behavior. And number two, uh, reminders. So a lot of universities, for example, have started to use uh, nudges after an executive education program. So, you know, think back to your strategy model. What's your aspiration? The first step in strategy. What's your aspiration? Um, the, on average, these don't change behavior. What changes behavior is choice shaping. And that's the harder part of this. So a very simple example. Um, January 1 is uh, almost here as we record this podcast. These kinds of dates, be it New Year, first day of the month, first day of the week, your birthday, your anniversary, these dates have sort of a freshness effect, a fresh start effect. And people who commit to a well-designed, not just any, but a well-designed behavioral change on these critical dates for a fresh start, they actually have significantly better outcomes. All right. So what that tells me is uh, I'm going to nudge you starting on the 29th or 30th of December, but I'm going to hit you hard on January 1. This is your day. Start now. Hopefully you've learned from my nudges on the 29th, 30th, and 31st how to design a proper behavioral change. So BJ Fogg, tiny habits approach. Um, hopefully you know how to design that, that behavioral change. And now go. Get an accountability partner even better. Reward yourself. The only time you get to listen to your favorite album, ACDC, Back in Black, is when you're at the gym exercising. Otherwise, you don't get to hear any ACDC. Guess what? You're going to the gym more often. <laughs> so, so focus on creating and shaping a better choice. Inspiration's fun. Reminders are helpful. But they don't really change behavior in a meaningful way. And... The question there is, I'm just looking uh, online here, some stats around the money which is wasted on training. And so it looks like, you know, if depending on which article you read, 
somewhere between $350 billion is spent every year on ups, upskilling people or co- people in the corporate world. I think that's just in the US. But what you're saying here is, you know, how many training providers would be guilty of putting in inspirational quotes as a, as a follow-up method or, or reminders? Talk to us about this choice shaping. So you're saying that like if it was a leadership context, and that's perhaps what I'm biased towards in terms of how you develop better leaders, how are you helping someone, you know, instead of, let's say, they're trying to develop a different type of communication style, how are you choice shaping something like that? Okay. Uh, communication style. So that one, I, I haven't, I, I know as a, a former communication professor, I, I should probably have that right on the tip of my tongue, but uh, I've not had a lot of questions on that one. So what I would probably do, let's say that we have an executive who has a little bit of history of perhaps being a little narcissistic, uh, a little directive, needs to be the tip of the sword, the tip of the spear, so to speak. What I'm probably going to do is start with a very simple behavior. And the next time you're sitting down with one of your direct reports, all I want you to do is pre-plan one question, start with that question, hit the timer on your phone and shut up for two minutes. That's all I want you to do. Nothing more than that. Ask a question and shut up. Now, for a narcissistic tip of the spear, ladder climbing executive, that's not going to be easy. (laughs) This is not a behavior set that's part of their natural repertoire, broadly speaking. But that would be the kind of behavior I would start with for, uh, for a classic communication sort of example. Here's another one. Here's another one. Um, in fact, I was, I was coaching, a uh, a mid-level and very successful manager in the energy industry. And uh, he had a challenge with delegating, okay? And so what I said is that once you, you, you delegate and you plan, remember, you've got to follow up with these people because one of the biggest problems with delegating is I give you the work, I walk away, I come back two months later and I go, what, why is this failing, right? All right, so on Monday... Before you go to lunch, you're going to follow up with Michael. On Tuesday, you're going to follow up with Sulan. On um, uh, Wednesday, you're going to follow up with Rish. All right. Now, before you can go to lunch, you walk up to Michael, you walk up to Sulan, you walk up to Rish, and you simply say, if you have any questions or any requests on this project, please let me know by the end of the day. I'm headed to lunch now. That's what. A 10 second task, but you're now following up with each person once a week and saying, what's the challenge? How can I help you? How can we move this forward? Now, all of a sudden you're a helpful manager rather than somebody who just simply dumped more work on somebody else's desk. Very powerful. Okay. Got you. So really kind of making it more granular rather than inspiring them to be, be a great leader, you know support your team rather than it's really getting much more granular and again that really comes back to what we we're talking about at the beginning in terms of behavior rather than mindset focus on on that and then that actually produces change over time 
Exactly. And if we go to all of this research on behavioral economics, the fact that I cared about you enough to take 10 seconds and say, how can I help you? That's the inspiration. You don't necessarily have to walk me up and pat me on the back and, hey, you're beautiful, you're brilliant, great job, love having you on the team, go team. Everybody knows that's a bunch of BS, all right? And they play along because you're the boss, no other reason. But if you actually help them, they'll love you. Michael, I think that's a great place to leave this conversation. It has been a fascinating discussion. Thanks for writing some truths and for going against some um, mainstream views. And we're going to link to Extend My Runway on uh, the podcast description here. Um, it sounds like a fascinating business and one which is going to create waves and potentially open up brand new opportunities for uh, this aging workforce where a companies, I think they're looking for good people and they kind of struggle when they're, I feel like you've got an opportunity to open up a like a whole brand new talent pool, which has been sat there already, but they've just been convinced that they're useless or they're, I don't know, they're, they're aging and into, um, what's the word, their, their retirement or something like that. Exactly. All I want to do is drive demand for a really talented and underutilized segment of our talent pool. That's exactly it. Thank you. Thank you. Very powerful. Awesome. And Michael, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you.